There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. What is idolatry? Basically, it involves ascribing divinity and or granting worship to something created instead of the Creator Himself. There are two types of created things that idolaters tend to worship. Number one, things that are created by God, and number two, things that have been created or made by human beings. It is often, and this is very important, it is often an attempt to relate to the infinite, invisible, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and perfect God by identifying him with something finite, visible, devoid of knowledge, lacking power, confined to one place, an imperfect thing that is worshipped. Often this involves a statue, an image, an icon, or a picture representing some being thought to be divine. This is such a terrible misrepresentation of who God is. Idolatry can be divided into 11 categories, and I'll succinctly go through each one of them. Number one, worship of inanimate objects like stones, mountains, or rivers. Number two, worship of animate things like animals, trees, or plants. Number three, worship of heavenly bodies like the sun, the moon, the stars, or the earth itself. Number four, worship of the forces of nature like wind, fire, and rain. Number five, worship of deceased ancestors. Number six, worship of imaginary mythological deities by means of pictures, statues, or images. Number seven, worship of angels, demons, or spirit beings, whether actually existent or non-existent of any kind. Number eight, worship of a process of life, specifically sexual reproduction. Number nine, worship of any ordinary human being who claims to be divine. Number 10, worship of an ideal or some philosophical concept instead of the creator. Number 11, allowing anything or anyone other than God to become the highest priority of life, demanding one's full devotion and attention. Even covetousness, which is lusting for material possessions that belong to others, is described as idolatry in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Many ancient 
religions, like those associated with the Egyptian, Grecian, and Roman cultures and empires, boasted a pantheon of deities that were often represented by idolatrous images. Hinduism is the largest living religion promoting this practice in the world today, with a pantheon of 330 million gods and goddesses. That's the traditional number. There can be just as many deity forms to represent them, and usually they refer to them as deity forms instead of quote-unquote idols. Of the 11 main living religions, three of them prohibit idolatry altogether, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Three more, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Jainism, actually began as reform movements that originally taught against the idolatry that was so pervasive in the predominant Hindu culture. Ironically, though, Jainism and certain Buddhist sects have devolved into worldviews that once again accept this practice. In India and other areas with a large Hindu populace, idolatry abounds. Many shrines, both large and small, contain pictures, images, and deity forms adoringly viewed by a daily stream of worshipers. Often, these gods who are worshipped have multiple human parts, like four or six heads, six or eight hands, etc., or they bear an animal-like resemblance. Consider the popular Hindu god Hanuman, who has the appearance of a monkey, or Ganesh, who has the head of an elephant but the body of a human being. At Hindu temples and private altars in homes, idol gods are at times bathed, dressed, adorned with jewelry and flowers, fed, and even tucked into bed at night. Most of those participating in these rituals have probably never questioned the myths associated with these deities. The stories are just handed down from one generation to the next and blindly accepted. I was guilty of the same kind of naive acceptance of those stories and those deities during the time I studied under an Indian guru in 1969 and 1970. Thankfully, God opened my eyes to reality and to the true God. Now, some Hindus who do not embrace these traditions often show tolerance for fellow Hindus who do. According to the Far Eastern worldview, every expression of worship, no matter how primitive or elementary, is considered a stepping stone toward ultimate reality. The Hindu mystic Ramakrishna explained this kind of perspective with the following analogy. He said this, we see little girls with their dolls, but how long do they play with them? Only so long as they are not married. Similarly, one needs images and symbols so long as God is not realized in his true form. It is God himself who has provided these various forms of worship to suit different stages of spiritual growth and knowledge. End of quote. 
It's God who has provided these? I question that idea very seriously, and you'll see why in just a little while. Even though more mature teachers of Far Eastern doctrine insist idolatry is an inferior approach based on myths and false assumptions, yet they often claim it is a step the right direction. The stories of the activities of Hindu gods may be fictitious, but on the level of the common people, they illustrate valuable spiritual truths. However, when I hear that viewpoint, the following questions rise in my mind. Is it not unethical to promote something spiritually false as if it were absolutely true? Does this not constitute a spiritual kind of coercion, a manipulation of simple-minded multitudes who unquestionably believe? Moreover, how can false methods in seeking God and false interpretations of the nature of God ever lead to a true understanding of his attributes? I must admit that I admire the passion for truth that dominates the Hindu culture. Their evident hunger for spiritual realities has warmed my heart every time I visited the land of India. In some ways, it often exceeds that which I have witnessed in a predominantly materialistic and often hedonistic Western world. Yet, as I often say, sincerity is not always an indication of veracity. What about the biblical view of idolatry? Directly opposite to any kind of tolerant view is the strong and unmistakable mandate spoken by God on the top of Mount Sinai. Yahweh spoke in his thunderclap voice and gave the Ten Commandments, beginning with these, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. That's Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Such a blunt divine edict leaves no room for discussion. God was very plain in instructing his people never to participate in this method of worship. He never said it may be wrong, but it's a step the right direction, and it helps people, so I will allow it at certain times. He said, thou shalt not. Isaiah, God's prophet to the Jews, urged his listeners to be awakened to the falsehood of this practice. Listen to what he said in Isaiah 45, verse 20. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Why did he say such a thing? Because a God who is a mere inanimate wooden or metal form cannot hear cannot see, cannot walk, and certainly cannot intervene in the lives of devotees. Of course, most advocates of this practice would argue that the inanimate idol is only a crude representation of an actually existent spiritual entity, a literal God. The idol, though lifeless, 
is actually inhabited by the spirit of a God who is alive and who can hear and can see and can walk. Just suppose, though, if a particular God is just the product of human imagination and does not actually exist, and if there is some kind of spirit inhabiting a wood or stone or metal image of that God, what kind of spirit is it? The New Testament writer Paul explained to the Corinthian church that these spirit beings are actually demons. Their purpose is to impersonate those gods being worshipped and thus mislead the religious who are devoted to them, hindering them from obtaining a relationship with the true God. For these reasons and others, Paul commanded Christians to flee from idolatry. He didn't just say consider whether or not it's false. He said run from it. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 20. What about the curse that was proclaimed in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 10? When Moses expanded on the original Ten Commandments, he pronounced a curse that would pass down from one generation to the next of those who worship idols. Listen to it closely. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Of course, at any given time, a person can repent of idolatry, and this curse can be broken and dissolved not only for the repentant person, but for all future generations proceeding from him or her. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham's father was an idolater. Worse than that, he was an idol maker. But when Abraham entered a covenant with the true God, the curse that should have passed to his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren was removed and a line of blessing was installed instead. Remember when God spoke to him in Genesis 12. He said, I will bless you and make your name great, and in you and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And so God pronounced a flow of blessing down through the family instead of the iniquity of the fathers passing to the children to the third and fourth generation. So if someone has been involved in the worship of false idols, I urge that person to repent and declare the curse ends with me, because that's very much a possibility if repentance is sincere. You may think that guiltiness in this area is primarily to be found in those who blatantly promote a polytheistic worldview, which is the worship of many gods, but it is often discovered in more subtle forms. Many years ago, I sent a copy of my book, which is titled In Search of the True Light, to every yoga teacher in Los Angeles County 
and also some in Orange County and Riverside County. Among those who responded was one yoga teacher who had a studio in that area. She invited me to visit her studio and to share the gospel in greater depth. And when I walked in, I noticed that she had a picture of Jesus on the wall alongside pictures of several famous gurus, including Yogananda, offering equal worshipful respect to all of them. I immediately shared with her my feelings on the matter, bluntly explaining, you are breaking the first two commandments by placing these mere men who claim to be God-realized gurus on the same level as Jesus who was the only begotten Son of God. However, all of those gurus died and are still in the grave, but Jesus rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. To treat them as equals is idolatrous and blasphemous. Those gurus are mere human beings, but Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. She immediately realized her error, humbled herself before God in repentance, and soon after that, she shut down her yoga studio. She knew she could not mix the two worldviews together. The curse was broken in her life at that very point. Let me share another powerful scripture from the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now listen to the next part carefully. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This prohibition of idolatry makes many customs and traditions in Far Eastern religious groups completely unacceptable to a Christian who embraces the biblical worldview especially when it comes to worshipful reverence being offered to fellow human beings. For instance, when I was involved in yoga back in 1969 and 1970, we often used a common greeting. The word namaste was spoken when we came in contact with each other with a slight bow. And in essence, that means I bow to the divine in you. In other words, it is a monistic acknowledgement that all human beings are manifestations of God, expressions of the divine. Another glaring example of the deification of human beings is the initiation ceremony for those aspiring to seriously practice transcendental meditation. The organization founded by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi Uh, the guru that was so influential in the lives of the Beatles. The opening ritual, called a puja, 
involves a Hindu hymn being sung in front of a picture of Maharishi's mentor, Guru Dev. And the favor and presence of the Hindu gods are then invoked and various offerings, including fruits and flowers, are presented to Guru Dev, celebrating his revered status in the spiritual lineage of that movement. The final prayer begins with a statement of faith concerning this world-famous promoter of TM. Listen to this final prayer, and I quote, Guru in the glory of Brahma, Guru in the glory of Vishnu, Guru in the glory of the great Lord Shiva, Guru in the glory of the personified transcendental fullness of Brahman, to him Sri Guru Dev, adorned with glory, I bow down. That's completely unacceptable. If Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar made, then none of us should bow down to any image, any picture, or any human being, much less some form created by a human being. Advocates of Transcendental Meditation, I must admit, do not consider Guru Dev an avatar, which is an incarnation of God or a God, into fleshly form. However, in Far Eastern religions and New Age spirituality, each person is said to have a divine essence. So the argument is presented that such worshipful actions toward a fellow human being that devotees believe attained a higher state of consciousness is certainly not wrong. I contend that it is. In Christianity, we find the teaching that all human beings, that includes Guru Dev, that includes Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and everyone else in this world, we are born separate from God prior to salvation. We do not have an inward, quote-unquote, spark of divinity. Rather, we have the status of being sinners until Jesus comes to dwell within our hearts. And that happens when we repent, when we believe on his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and when we receive him into our hearts to be Lord of our lives. Only Jesus, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, was divine. Only Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. He was not an ordinary human being. He was born of a virgin. The Spirit of God created a body within Mary's womb to dwell in, Moreover, though tempted in all points as we are, he never sinned. He never yielded to temptation. All other human beings have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the practice of transcendental meditation is completely wrong for a Christian. The gods mentioned during the initiation ceremony, Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma, are presented in numerous myths as being error-prone with human-like vulnerabilities and limitations, subject to demonstrations of bad behavior, weak behavior, or even lewd behavior, and they are the product of human imagination. They are fictitious. They do not exist, and so we cannot ever acknowledge them in any kind of ceremony. Now let me come to a conclusion. Idolatry is wrong for eight main reasons. Number one, 
It misrepresents the true nature of God. Number two, it robs sincere but misled worshipers of a real relationship with the true God. Number three, it is a horrible waste of time. Number four, it opens the doors to demonic invasion in the idolater's life. Number five, it is degrading and insulting to the true God. Number six, it hinders the progress of truth in this world. Number seven, it brings a curse from God. And number eight, it is a sin. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.